You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Kira Snyder, and I wrote episode 211 of The Handmaid's Tale, Holly. Kira Snyder is an Emmy, Golden Globe, and WGA award-winning writer and executive producer on the TV show The Handmaid's Tale for Hulu. Her other film and television work includes the movie Pacific Rim Uprising, pilot scripts for Hulu, FX, and Amazon, The 100 on The CW, Incursion for Stars, Sci-Fi's Eureka and Alphas, and the CBS vampire cult hit Moonlight. Kira is a graduate of the Writers Guild of America's showrunner training program and the Warner Brothers Television Writers Workshop. The Parish Mail eBooks, Kira's interactive young adult supernatural mystery series, are available for Kindle. Formerly a computer game designer, Kira has created games for Microsoft, the MIT Press textbook Rules of Play, and Electronic Arts, including the seminal alternate reality game Majestic. Kira loves science, sci-fi, and games, reading and playing when she's not writing and designing. The Handmaid's Tale, adapted from Margaret Atwood's novel, follows the experiences of a woman named June who is kidnapped, renamed Offred, and forced into a life of sexual servitude as a handmaid who produces offspring for the power brokers of Gilead, a theocracy rising from a terrorist attack on the United States. In the episode Holly, stranded in an empty house in the dead of winter, Offred finds herself having to give birth alone. Drawing on her own memories for strength, she ultimately abandons the possibility of escape for the sake of her newborn daughter. The story of the episode Holly, episode 11 of season two, is really in Bruce Miller, the showrunner, the executive producer and show creator. was in his mind from the very beginning of definitely season two, but even of the show altogether. Season one, if you've seen it, you might remember that Offred is pregnant. So we know at some point she's likely to give birth. That's an inevitable thing that happens when, you, when you're pregnant. And that was going to be a story we wanted to tell in season two. So we knew that was kind of out there. Uh, we start every season with a writer's retreat, which is a little bit fancy name for just gathering in Bruce's house for a few days, where we all get together and talk about big picture ideas for the season, what worked and did not work from the previous season, and then look ahead to the season that we're about to start on. In this season, he was really interested in making it very hard for her. So she would be on her own. She would be alone in some way. Where was she going to be? How was this going to unfold? That started to come into focus. The episode immediately previous to this one, episode 210, Offred is driven out to this big, beautiful summer house that's been closed up for the winter. And that's where she has this very heart-wrenching, very brief reunion with her daughter, who has been taking away from her at the very beginning of our story a couple of years in the past. Rather than trying to get her back to civilization and out someplace else where Offred would be alone to give birth, the idea that came up in the room was, how about we just leave her there? How about, how about she gets stranded there completely on her own, no way to get anywhere? What does she do then? So that's kind of how we had the idea of having her in that place at that time. It was a small group of people. It was myself and I guess two other writers. We were at basically the end of our season in terms of the story breaking process, the breaking down of each episode. And usually we have more people than that. Our staff is about, uh, that year is about nine people, I believe. We were really getting into the nitty gritty of what happens beat by beat, scene by scene. The car that is kind of this key part of this, this episode is very memorable for people. 
that actually was not part of the initial part of the story. We initially had her there in the house giving birth, you know, going to labor and giving birth, and there, there was no car. And that was an idea that came in partway through the story-breaking process because we felt like she needed something to work towards. So she needed to be doing something. She needed to be trying to escape because she's, for the first time in pretty much the whole series, she is unobserved. She is someplace where no one really knows where she is. She has the opportunity, theoretically, to get out of there if she only had a way to get out of there. We did know it would be winter, so there were the, the elements would be keeping her not just running through the woods. The idea of the wolf also came in very early then as well. So she, she couldn't just take off to the neighbors. There's something dangerous outside that she would need to be avoiding, something that would keep her inside. But we also wanted that to have attention of something to achieve, an actual way to get out. So the car came in kind of not, like I said, not at the top of the process, but partway through the process. And that really just pulled the whole episode into focus because it gave her a really cool thing to discover, this really uplifting moment when she discovers the car actually works and she hears some music and she hears this female DJ who is Oprah Winfrey. We were so delighted to have her do that cameo for us. And she has something she wants to do. So that really provided a good framework for the top of the episode until things continue to get more complicated. Another big change was the introduction of the Waterfords. So in the, in the episode, Fred and Serena Joy Waterford, who are Offred's captors and, and rapists and enslavers, actually come to the house. They, they, he knows that she's there because he, he's the one who arranged the visit with her daughter. This happens right when she's just about to really kind of get in the car and go. So she's you know, discovered the car. She's found the car keys, found a coat to disguise herself. She's pulled together supplies. She's being very smart about it. And then she hears a car pull up outside who comes out of that car, but the people she least wants to see, the Waterfords. And it's a bit of a horror movie moment when they come in looking for her. It wasn't originally them. We did know that in addition to the threats outside, you know, the weather and, and, the, and the wolf, we wanted to have someone come to the house, someone that would provide an additional obstacle, an additional danger, additional scare. And initially that was like local guardians, like they you know, heard movement of the house or you know, some, some alarm was tripped. And it was that for a little while, and then she was still hiding. And it just it didn't really sit right with me. It, it, it worked, but not great. And so I really kind of took it back to the room and was thinking and discussing with my coworkers, like, <laughs> kind of the, the people she would w least want to see in this moment are the two people who are waiting for that baby that she's about to give birth to. And that's how the Waterfords came to be. Once the story was broken, and again, that definitely was a bit of an iterative process, this right before we got to outline. One of the things about this script, which I'm very, very proud of, is that it kind of went from outline to script to production kind of very quickly and without a lot of changes. I was actually looking through my, my email to see how many drafts of things there were. And there were actually not a whole lot of drafts, two or three, before I, I handed off to, to my coworkers for, for their feedback, in part because we had no choice because we were going into production very quickly, but also because it really kind of dialed in very clearly and in a way that we all really liked very early on. So a lot of the heavy lifting of figuring out what was going to work in the story happened basically in the writer's room part of it. So all the major pieces were pretty much in place by the time I started writing the outline. Most shows really rely on outlines. They're typically on a TV show part of the deliverables when you are working typically a studio show. So you write the outline and you turn that in and you get notes from your coworkers and then your boss and then the studio and the network. And then, then you're approved to go to script. I'm also a big fan of outlines because I, I think of them as roadmaps. If you have a solid outline, in my experience, the writing of the script goes typically quite quickly. The outline can be a little more challenging just because there's more. you're actually doing the hard work of the heavy lifting in the story there. And you still are still thinking about you know, what the dialogue could be because our, our outlines typically don't have a lot of dialogue in them. But you're actually thinking about 
really just the block and tackle of writing the script. You're thinking, how does the scene start? How does the scene end? What is the transition like between the two scenes? How is the pace of the act shaping up? What is the act out going to be? The Handmaid's Tale is on Hulu, and there's a, a brief kind of cut to black. So we do think about, you know, what acts look like. So we we break them without acts, and we put the acts in kind of as you write them, and they seem to have kind of worked out really well. Most of us have worked long enough in the business that we've internalized how to do that structure. But with the outline, you get to be inventive. That's where the dialogue comes in. That's where we think about voiceover or off-read. Yeah, this even for a show as spare and dialogue light as our show is, is unique. The shooting script was 30 pages, but the episode runs about 46 minutes. So it runs more or less the same length as a quote unquote hour long. And it is very light on dialogue and, and she's alone for a lot of it. So part of it is our, our not so secret secret weapon, which is Elizabeth Moss, who is an amazingly talented actor. She's really just astonishing. She can convey so much with her face and her body that often you don't need a lot of dialogue or voiceover. Something we discovered in season one, the season before this one aired, is we would often write a lot of voiceover in the script. She would memorize it. She plays it in her head. She does it internally. So she's performing the, the voiceover, even though no one is speaking it. Even recorded the voiceover uh, once we were in post-production, and we didn't need it. We ended up cutting a lot of the voiceover that had gone through that entire process because her expression and her performance was so clear. You didn't really need that voiceover. In the episode Holly, finding good places to use voiceover but not relying on it over much was kind of a challenge. It's really You really only hear her speak in voiceover at the beginning and the end of the episode. And those are actually paraphrases from the book. One of our, again, not-so-secret tricks is to go back to the Margaret Atwood novel as much as we can, as often as we can. The adaptation of this novel has been a really interesting process. Season one largely follows the events of the book, and there's some differences. Some things are pulled up and pulled way up uh, earlier in the season than they happen in the book. But largely the spine of the book is a, is the spine of the show. When we got to the end of season one, a lot of people were saying, well, what do you do now? <laughs> you, you're done with the book. You know, where is the show going to go from here? One of the beautiful and remarkable things about Margaret Atwood's novel is that even though you only see a very constrained point of view, Kind of the bonnet cam, basically, you're in Offred's point of view, looking out from that bonnet. The world that she paints, it's deep and it's broad and it's rich, and there's like little details that are just mentioned. And that was really our compass for the seasons going forward is the, these things that she teased at or hinted at or mentioned in passing, or things that were kind of implied, but you would not get to see what they were on the page. That's where we were able to go. So, what does the criminal justice system look like in this world when you're a woman? And that allowed us to tell that story. You know, what is like to be a man in this world? Like, that's something that the book doesn't spend any time with. And I think about because you're really in Alfred's point of view the whole time. You know, how is the system corrupting everybody? Because, you know, the women are very much the subjugated class in this world. But what does that ultimate power do to a person? It, it corrupts them. So we can spend time with that. You know, what is it like being a young person? Uh, I'm thinking of the character uh, Eden, who we, we had in, in later seasons. To be a young person to grow up in this world, how do you make your way when this is all you've ever known and you are starting to discover that you might have other opinions? And, and how do you kind of juxtapose those things? As we're recording this, we're about two-thirds of the way through the story-breaking process of season four. And even yesterday, I was pulling a quote from the book to, to put in as a bit of voiceover and a bit of dialogue into an episode that I'm working on now. I'm always fascinated to hear from other writers what their processes are, because everyone's got a kind of different way of doing things. For me personally, I've been a writer of various kinds my whole life, but in terms of a career, I've actually done other things. 
I've been writing professionally since 2007. And before that, I was in the computer games industry. I was very used to getting in my car and going to work and having an office and having office mates. And that's a part of TV writing, which actually is very common to having, quote unquote, real jobs. If you just like to write at home in your pajamas, TV writing is probably not for you because it is social. It is collaborative. You are working with other people. You're typically going to an office. And, you know, a lot of people aren't interested in that part of screenwriting. The whole part of the fun of screenwriting for a lot of people is to be in your pajamas all day. That mode was very easy for me to, to slide into as and I, I found myself carrying over a lot of my work habits. So once I have the outline done and I'm you know opening my screenwriting software and, and diving in, I usually like to start at the beginning. And I typically move through the script, but I will sometimes skip around. I also like to get the ending done just because I know if the ending's done, then I kind of just have the two pieces meeting in the middle. If there's scenes that I feel like I really have a good handle on, I'll sometimes go to one of those if I'm having a tough time on another scene. I have a pretty good sense of when my writer energy starts running out. I typically save the big scenes for the morning when I have kind of more energy. I kind of run out of gas right around three or four in the afternoon. And also, if I know that's coming up, then I can kind of noodle on it overnight. So I might come at it the next morning, having thought about it, think about it in the shower, thinking about it while working out. I try to be responsible to kind of where I know my energy level is. And there's always something to do. There's always like a little scene or an easy scene or a quick rewrite. I try not to rewrite too much as I'm getting a first draft done. I like to try to move through to get a first draft as good as I can get it, but not fiddle too much right off the bat. Uh, and then very much it's a process of rewriting and refining. And and for me, knowing what to rewrite and refine, it, it's something that's taken some calibration over the years. Something I absolutely do is get other eyes on it. So once I feel like it's done, I give it to my coworkers for their notes before I turn it into Bruce Miller, my boss. But for myself, when I'm re revising for myself, it's kind of this internal thing of if it feels right. Like if I'm reading over something and it's almost like like a rough spot on a piece of wood, Something just doesn't quite click or it feels a little half-baked. I'll spend the time to you know, try something else or you know, rewrite that line. Some techniques that I have found useful is if a scene's not working, maybe it's in the wrong place. Maybe the wrong people are in that scene. Maybe you don't need the scene. I, I love cutting scenes that aren't working. I love that almost as much as writing scenes that are working. So yeah, so I, 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 will, I will go through that process myself as many times as it takes till it feels right. And it is often more of a feeling than anything else. I know some writers have kind of checklists for things to check when they feel like a, a, a script is ready to go. But for me, there's really no replacement for someone else to have a look at it. Because that, that's the thing that certainly for things that are like mysteries and thrillers, but even not for those other types of stories, there are connections that get made in your head that if you're the writer, sometimes you can't see if it's not working on the page. And so you need someone else who is not in your head to sort of say, hey, I think I see what you're going for here, but I didn't really see this emotional turn, or I miss what happened from here to here, or I really understood this place. I feel like it was this piece here. I think it's a little overexplicated. Maybe you can thin that out. And that's something that you really need another brain or two to look at to make it clear what needs to get fixed after that point. TV writing really is a process of revising, revising, and revising some more. So you, you revise it for yourself before you pass it on to perhaps you know, your colleagues, your coworkers. You revise it, and then you give it to your boss, the showrunner take his or her notes. You know, that sometimes is a, is a one-pass process. It might be more than one, depending on what's required. Then that goes to the studio and the network. And then for our show, that we get the studio network notes at the same time. Sometimes, often, it's a two-step process, but we're, it's a combined process for us. Then it's approved to be turned into a production draft. That's the end of the pre-production part of the, of the writing process. Once you're actually getting into production and into, into prep technically with our production crew, 
There's more revisions. The director will have, you know, thoughts and ideas. Sometimes the geography of the sets will require some changes. Uh, The actors might want to talk about uh, a line or a dynamic that might need to change. The revising of a script continues all the way through production, and sometimes even after production. The whole episode's been filmed. Like, the whole episode's been shot. It's all in the can. It's being edited. You still might be writing a little extra dialogue, like a line might be needed to clarify something. It's a line that plays on the back of someone's head because something wasn't clear. You might tweak the voiceover. You might cut the voiceover. So the writing process, the revising process, right up until you lock audio, which is one of the last parts of the whole deal, you're revising the whole way. So like I said earlier, I I came to TV writing, screenwriting from another profession, and that was a bit of a learning curve, understanding that it's kind of never finished. And one of the things that TV writing really teaches you is how to roll with that. Like you, You have to roll with the changes. And sometimes you'll be asked to change something that you don't like. Sometimes that you will not agree with a note. Depending on the situation, you might be able to kind of have a discussion and you'll figure out a way around it. Other times you have to take notes that you don't like. And learning how to do that and be gracious about it and make it work is kind of part of the, you know, the professional life of the TV writer. It teaches you to not be too precious with your own words, which is very valuable. It teaches you when and how to dig in and fight battles. It makes you really interrogate your own creative process because if you're having to defend a choice you made, you have to put some thought into why you made that choice so that those discussions can be really informative. And, you know, personally, I love good ideas wherever they come from. So I'm in that process now with the episode I'm working on right now. We're in prep for season four. And we spoke with the director recently and she had some really cool ideas I'm really excited to incorporate. Our show does send writers and producers to set, but because we block shoot and what that means is that episodes are prepared shot at the same time. So my episode was alongside episode 12. So I was able to be on set, but I got there the day after they finished (laughs) shooting my episode. So I was up there for a few days of episode 12, which is great. And when you're on set, that also might be a chance to do some rewriting because sometimes something situational needs to change with the set or the weather. You know, there might be some actor question there. So having a writer on set is very useful for that as well. The other thing that was part of the writing process of this episode was research. We really believe in doing a lot of research. One of the things that Margaret Atwood made a point of in her novel, which we make a point of on the show as well, is nothing is in the show that has not happened or is happening in real life. And that was one of her guidelines for the novel as well. And we've kind of taken that to heart in terms of every aspect. So, you know, this episode was about this woman giving birth on her own. So I spoke to an OBGYN. I spoke to a midwife, talked a lot about what that process might be like. And I also asked, you know, what does TV get wrong about women giving birth? You know, we're gratified to hear a lot of people say that this is one of the most authentic portrayals of a woman giving birth that they've seen on TV. And part of that's because we really dove into what that's like with people who know what it's like. It was a little daunting to take on knowing that it would be just June. But again, because we have such an amazing collection of artists working with us, Elizabeth Moss, first and foremost, but the director, Dana Reed, did an astonishing job. This was, I, I think this was Dana's first episode for us, and she completely knocked it out of the park. And our DP, Zoe White. So it was a very female-heavy crew in front of and behind the camera on this particular episode. In our show, we, we take a lot of pride and make a lot of effort to, to have as much representation and inclusivity as we can, you know, both in front of and behind the camera. But having both Dana and Zoe there as resources for Lizzie, uh, Elizabeth, was great because they're both moms. They could talk through what that experience was like. And I think that sensitivity, that mindset um, absolutely comes through. In addition to the wonderful, scary moments, the beautiful moments. One of the things about shooting, well, any place, but certainly in in, in Toronto, Canada, which is where we shoot, you never really know what the weather's going to bring you. So I believe this episode filmed in 
I want to say March, and it's a gorgeously snow-covered landscape. So you're in the woods, and they're bare, and you're at this beautiful old manor house, gorgeous old manor house, and everything's covered with snow. And then you have this figure in red kind of moving through the snow. And it's like a fairy tale. That's part of the reason the wool thing plays so well is because it feels like Little Red Riding Hood. Two days later, all the snow was gone. <laughs> it was completely melted. So we got two days of snow in that location. We were there for just long enough to have continuity and that, those beautiful visuals. And then thank goodness that we actually got all that stuff when we did because it was extraordinary. I, th- I think the episode would have been beautiful thanks to the people we have working on the, the show. But the snow really kind of made it kind of like a dark fairy tale. One of my favorite descriptions of this episode, and I forget where I heard this from, but someone described it as a feminist, the revenant, which I thought was kind of great. So you have, it's very much this woman against the elements, having to draw on her own strengths and also her memories. That's really the, the role of the flashbacks is she's drawing on her memories of her family, of the birth of her first child, and even of her training as a handmaid. She draws on the good and the bad to prepare her for this moment. Because we talked about a lot of that in the room. It's like, you know, would you be thinking of Janine giving birth to her own baby, which we saw in season one? Would you be thinking about the handmaid training? And I really felt strongly that she would because not like being at the Red Center and, you know, being inserted by Aunt Lydia was a lot of fun. But what that does is that teaches those young women how to give birth without anesthetic, how to give birth very naturally, as well as all the positive images is what she needs to get through the day. It allowed us also to have dialogue in the episode as opposed to a pretty much dialogue-free episode otherwise. They're also a little lighter. I intentionally wrote them a little funnier. Our show is not a laugh riot. (laughs) It's not a comedy by any stretch. But we really like to, wherever possible, find the lightness in these situations because that's what we do as people. Even in our darkest and hardest moments, we find the humor. So those flashbacks allowed us to do that as well. And the other place where we were actually able to dig in and show dialogue was the big scene, uh, the big fight scene between Fred and Serena. And that was something that I had a tremendous amount of fun writing. And the actors really enjoyed performing because what I realized in talking with my writers when getting, you know, my co-writers getting to this part of the story is this is probably the first time in the show that we, the audience, have seen them in a place where they are not observed. As far as they know, they're alone. Even in their own homes, they're observed. You know, Rita, the Martha is around, you know, Offred's around. So everything is very couch. And they've, they've said kind of nasty things to each other, but always with an eye towards someone could be listening. Here, as far as they know, no one's listening. And the gloves come off in a way that was really pretty amazing to, to witness. I know there's a lot of screaming at the TV in season three, like, why doesn't she take the shot? You know, why doesn't she kind of turn into Sarah Connor from, from the Terminator? And it's because she's a real person. And we believe me, we all feel that same tug as well. We would love for her to kind of take up arms in a really big kind of, you know, kick-ass kind of way. That being said, we just need to understand that we really make her a, a real person. And she's going through some extraordinary things, but keeping her grounded is really key. So keeping on show, part of it happens in the story stage, and a lot of it happens in the, the script stage. It can be a tricky show to write. I think everyone's first script on the show is very daunting, very scary. For those of us who've been on the show before, the first episode of the season is like, okay, how do I do this? You know, what's it like? It's encouraging perhaps to, to hear from Bruce, multi-award winning show creator of, of The Handmaid's Tale. He's also trying to figure out every, you know, it, it, the first episode each season is hard. But we really try to help each other. It's a very collaborative staff. We're very close with each other. And it's a very safe, both in the room and on the page, it's a very safe space. So if you're trying something and it just doesn't work, someone will help you figure out the right way to do it without making you feel like you've done something wrong. We're all constantly learning from each other. Shows handle script assignments in a lot of different ways. 
Some shows handle them right at the very top of the season where, you know, there's a list of episodes and people's names are listed one right after the other. Bruce Miller, he likes to actually sort of assign as we go. There's lots of different reasons for that. Uh, episodes are not, they're not so assigned in terms of the content of the episode. There's a little bit of a myth is that, oh, this person's really good at action, so we're going to assign him or her the action episode. On our show, that's not how that works. We kind of look at where we are in the season. A lot of TV shows will assign early episodes to senior writers and then go down basically the, the hierarchy of the staff till you have the least junior people writing the later episodes. That can work. The challenge there is you start losing people from the room by the time you get to those l- later writers because people are writing their own scripts. They're on set. They're in post. They're in prep. So the actual number of bodies in the room to break a story gets less and less. For my episode, we only had three people in the writer's assistant for most of the breaking process. And because it was the senior people, you know, that was okay. But if imagine it was like a junior person and two other junior people, that's asking a lot of, of someone who was a little bit earlier in their career. Bruce likes to mix it up. So he will have a senior person and then a junior person and then a senior person and a junior person. And it just so happened that my time came up on this episode. But I also ended up co-writing it with, with Bruce in part because it was a story that he felt really passionate about and really wanted to dive into in some way himself. Every show's schedule is a little bit different from when the writers start to when production starts. And for us, it's been different year over year. So for season one, the order was for 10 episodes. And when the room started, Bruce Miller had written the first two scripts. So we started with two scripts already done, and then a pretty good sense, because we were leaning very much on the events of the book, pretty good sense of where we wanted to go for the rest of the season. So in that case, in season one, the room was done, the room was wrapped by the time we started production. That has been the one time that has happened. The years since have been a little bit more standard. Actually, the, the, the writing and then production sequentially is something that a lot of streaming shows do. That is pretty common. It's much more common for cable and, and broadcast to have a bit of an overlap or, or a lot of overlap. And that has been the case for us in the years since. But it's been different year over year. This year, we have more time. So we're not quite done with the, with the breaking of stories. So those of us who are left will continue to, to, to break what's left. Typically, it's the senior writers who stick around for that part of it. We began work on the show in 2016, kind of summerish of 2016. And that was before the election, before the primaries, actually. And we were just kind of quietly making our show, drawing from this book. You know, the book is, I believe it's never been out of print. And, you know, it came out in, in the 80s. And it's kind of always been timely. It was written at a specific moment in time, but unfortunately, never not been timely. We didn't know what kind of political moment the show would actually be coming out in. And we found ourselves, in a, especially in America, in a very different world than a lot of us expected to be. We had thought, under perhaps a different administration, our show would be this kind of cautionary tale. And it might even seem a little, a little hysterical, a little ridiculous, like that could never happen here, which is a very gendered term if you know the history of that word. And instead, we found ourselves as a show that was out there in a, you know, a heightened alternative universe kind of way, depicting this brutal, totalitarian, theocratic, chauvinist regime talking about you know, policies and point of views that are terribly retrograde. And then we were seeing a lot of those policies and points of view in the world around us. And of course, we could not possibly have predicted that. We would all much rather the show have been a lot less relevant <laughs> than, than it is now. We have never really set out to make a political show. What we've really, really tried to do is be truthful and responsible to the book, first and foremost. And then falling out from that, being responsible to June and her story and the world in which she lives. So those are really our, our big compass points. And then the, the point I made earlier about we don't invent new cruelties. We don't invent new terrible policies. We are drawing from what has happened or is happening in our world. 
And that's been really useful for us. We've, we spend a lot of time talking with people from the United Nations and Human Rights Watch in the government. Again, really trying to anchor what we're showing in something you know, truthful and authentic. There have been some very eerie coincidences when things have aired. There was an episode that aired with friends who are going to go to Canada. That was right when President Trump was having issues with President Trudeau. And he also had been meeting with, or talked about meeting with the North Korean leader. And it just seemed very timely in the episode where we see June physically like ripped away from her daughter was when a lot of the news about the, the families being separated at the border was finally coming to light. So where are the unwitting benefactors of a lot of the things that are happening in the world? That being said, we're all on the show. We're all very politically interested. We're political junkies, perhaps to our detriment. So we come in and there's a certain amount of ranting in the morning before we get down to work. But we carry that passion and that care and into, into what we work on and really stay, try to stay on, on, the, on the compass points of what the goals are for the show, which is June and her story. So my path to being on The Handmaid's Tale kind of started quite a few years ago. The second TV show I staffed on was a show called Eureka. And it was a Really fun sci-fi dramedy on the Sci-Fi Channel, and that's where I first worked with Bruce Miller. He was he was my boss on that show. And then I moved with him and a few other writers onto Alphas immediately after that, and then we kind of went our separate ways. Bruce likes to work with people he's worked with before. So it's kind of a super group of staffs that he's put together. And I uh, was trying to think about what might come next. You know, my, my deal was up, and I was trying to figure out: Do I want to you know, come back to the show? Do I want to explore other options? And that's when I got a call from Bruce saying, hey, are you interested in reading this script for this, the show I'm working on? And I had just happened to have reread The Handmaid's Tale when he sent that to me because I had just seen a really great adaptation of 1984 at The Broad. And I reread that book and I was remembering, oh, that's right. You know, it's, it's one of the touchstones for Margaret Atwood for The Handmaid's Tale. So I had just reread The Handmaid's Tale. And then I got to read the pilot that Bruce sent and then went in to meet with MGM and then we were off and running. A few things that I wish I had known when I started at the beginning of this business. So a lot of people might start into screenwriting directly out of film school or directly have a program like UCLA Extension, of which I, I, I attended. I, I don't have a certificate, but I, I took a class at UCLA Extension. Pretty much the first thing I did when I moved to L.A., so um, thank you for that. And actually, the pilot that I wrote in that class is a pilot that's still one of my samples. I still get meetings off of it, so I'm definitely a big fan of UCLA Extension Writers Program. That's one of the things I would say is, if, especially if you're new to town, taking a class, joining a writing group, it makes you accountable to other people. It teaches you about deadlines. TV is a very deadline-driven business. Sometimes with you know, a, a novel or a play, you have all the time in the world. For a feature, you might have a couple months. Uh, sometimes in TV, you might have to turn something around in a crazy short period of time. So just learning how to manage your time and have the discipline to write, sometimes when you don't feel like it. Having something that has external deadlines is great. So writing classes are great for that. Writing groups are good for that. The other thing that's really great about uh, those things, and I, I definitely recommend, is you develop uh, a cohort of people like you. You, you. you meet people who are kind of at your level. You stay in touch. You can swap scripts with each other. You can share the ups and downs because there are plenty of both uh, if this is a career you're moving into. That support is really key. It can be very isolating. Los Angeles can be an isolating place. So that UCLA extension class that I took, 2006, I believe I took it, I'm still really good friends with people I met in that class still. And those of us who have stayed in the business and kind of continue working at it, we've all moved up together. So we're all reading each other's scripts and we're all recommending each other for jobs now. And that was before any of us actually had a full-time job as a writer in the business. So finding that cohort is great just you know, emotionally, uh, creatively, and also like logistically because... Getting new eyes on your script is how you get better as a writer. My boss 
multi-award winner Bruce Miller is always uh, still passing his scripts by other people because that's how you know if you have something that's working. One of the fun things about being any kind of writer, but especially a TV writer, is is the fact that you have kind of an excuse to try new things and learn new things and keep yourself sharp and dive into new worlds. I really love that. I really love kind of finding new sandboxes, you know, mentally and creatively to play in. It's one of the things I missed most when I finished my actual schooling. No two days are the same. No two shows are the same. Handmaids, we're in the middle of season four right now. And, you know, it's a show I would happily be with as long as they'll have me. But in addition to that and beyond that, there's lots of possibilities. I, I like uh, when I'm on hiatus is the time that I do some development of my own. I've written some pilots for various networks. I'm interested in feature writing. I've been doing a little bit of that. And at some point, I would like to create and run a show of my own. And you know what that looks like, uh, you know, time will tell. It's a really exciting time right now to be a TV creator. There's so much great creative content out there, lots of opportunities to tell any kind of stories you want to tell. And I'm really excited. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm excited for what lies beyond. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andrei Nikolaev. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.